0: hel slash sober. Tossing and turning all night like a salad, it's time to put those sleepless nights to bed for good. Enter Tanasi, my sleep saviors, and they have science to back up their sleep, anxiety, and pain-relieving powers. Back in 2016, they invested a $2.5 million grant Hiding your addiction is a full-time job. It requires a lot of mental energy to keep up appearances and seem like nothing is wrong. Laura Cathcart-Robbins was in a high-profile marriage. She wanted this amazing life, but once she got there, she realized it wasn't actually the life she wanted. The pressure continued to build once Laura became the first black PA president for her children's school since 1972. In this episode, Laura and I discuss the pressure of maintaining a perfect image, how she found relief with Ambien, whether she had resentments and sobriety from all of this pressure, and how she learned how to just be herself in recovery. Laura Cathcart-Robbins is the host of the popular podcast, The Only One in the Room, and the author of the new book, Stash. Laura is also known for writing articles in HuffPo and The Temper on the subjects of race, recovery, and divorce. You can get more information about all of her work in the show notes, and if you would like to listen to the extended episode, then please check out my community, Living a Sober Powered Life. Let's get to the conversation. To the show. I'm so happy that you're here today.
1: Uh, Jill, I've been waiting for this. This is so exciting to me to to be sitting, you know, virtually in front of you and being able to have this conversation. I'm so happy.
0: You've actually been my inspo for just like the way that I want to present myself to the world. I, when we met back in LA a year ago, I was on this journey of kind of figuring out the vibe that I want to present and I was getting more serious as an entrepreneur and eventually I would become a full-time entrepreneur and you were always like the person I was like I want to be like Laura I want her vibe and so no pressure but you're you're my inspo that I and then your talk at Podfest um in May that yeah that was and your outfit that week like. <laughs>
1: had to have the outfit. Thank you for saying that. That is just like the very best compliment I could get and I so appreciate. I mean, I think that what we do is there are I'm always happy to see other women in in the spaces I inhabit and I think we inspire each other. Like I keep looking for women, you know, in the recovery space I'm looking for women whose recovery I admire in the, you know, the the world of business I'm looking for women who conduct themselves the way I like to conduct myself and And I'm not afraid to approach them and befriend them or ish so that I can (laughs) learn more about how they got to where they are. And I, I mean, you were inspiring to both Scott and I very much like as soon as before I met you, when we saw your talk, we kind of hung around so that we could not kind of we did hang around so that we could talk to you afterward. And I appreciate you saying that. And I'm throwing it right back at you.
0: Well, thank you. That that means a lot. Seriously. Yeah. And just like talking to you at those events and seeing you, it was like, so now I tell everybody, I'm like, you have to talk to Laura Cathcart Robbins. She's my inspiration. That's how I always. That's awesome. But we're here to talk about the amazing stash that is coming out very soon. And congratulations on your memoir. Thank you so much. The other theme that I saw that came up a lot, which was actually surprising for me, like knowing you now and like being so inspired by you is—is is you felt that you needed to maintain this really perfect image and like be this person, and you would talk about almost like collecting data and trying to figure out who you need to be in all these different situations. And first of all, I mean, just the mental energy that goes into that is a lot. But I was surprised, like knowing you now and then reading that. Do you think that that? pressure contributed to the ambient and everything?
1: <laughs> yeah, hundred percent. I mean, here, here's the thing is I had set myself up for and kind of hustled my way into this very high profile life where it wasn't just my perception. There were these expectations about the person in that life in that role would play tennis on Tuesdays, would have a personal shopper at Barney's, would know how to manage a household staff. Um, you know, those are the things that were the expectation of someone in, in my position and, and in a leadership position at this very kind of posh independent school where my kids went. But I, like I said, I had hustled my way in. Like I've, I wanted to figure out how to get in. I wanted, to, I wanted it. And then once I got there, I realized that it was not the right fit for me, but it was kind of too late. I was married. I had young children. <laughs> I like really committed to this thing. And so my, I, my idea, conscious or subconscious, I don't know, was just, you know, have this ridiculous, impossible list of stuff that you're doing, you know, starting with breakfast drop off, you know, just, just my kids, right? My kids, one of them has dyslexia. Um, They both played basketball. They both had um, educational tutors, after-school activities. So it was a full day just being parent association president because I was on campus all day, then getting them and getting them, you know, getting them food, getting them to all their activities, getting them home and doing homework and getting dinner. Like that was a full day. But in addition to that, I had my, I worked out every day. I played tennis twice a week. I did, you know, every single mom in that school had a jewelry line that I knew. It was crazy. If not not all at the same time, but I guess they inspired each other to start them. So you would have to go to their shows and you know show up like that if you weren't there, that was a really big deal. And then there were parties and lunches and spa days, you know, all of which I would rather skip, honestly. Still, I mean, I just don't really do them now. But then I felt obligated to do so. So my idea was if I check off all these things, if I show up this way, what I get is to take myself out at the end of the night. After I put the kids to bed, that's the last thing I need to check off my list. And then I can enjoy a full euphoric 10 minutes before the Ambient knocks me out. And I get to sleep and just be, you know, that oblivion that people talk about, which is, you know, that, that thing where there's just nothing, but not, not nothing. Like for me, it still felt good like there was a high even in the nothing of it. And so if I didn't have that, I don't think I could have kept up with the life. But I couldn't. Yeah, I couldn't. I couldn't. I couldn't have that life and not have a respite, not have something, you know, that release on the pressure cooker to let that steam out. Couldn't have.
0: Yeah. And that feels when you're in that situation, and you're as committed as you are with the family and your involvement in the school, like it feels like there's no way out, like there's no other option. Did you think that you could maintain that? Maybe you weren't even thinking about this, but did you think you could maintain all of this pressure like forever? I think it was
1: incremental. Like I would look at it in like semesters of school or like, okay, when summer starts, I'm really going to hang out in the Malibu house more. And we're just you know, I'm not going to, we're going to just do nothing, no camps for the kids or no whatever for the kids. We'll just hang out at the beach and it'll be great. And then, you know, 10 things get piled into that summer and I'm like basically on the same schedule and then it's fall and I'll be like, well, you know, winter, we're going to go away. And, you know, like, so I was like getting through each incremental period by kind of promising myself a break afterward. But I don't, I think I knew that I couldn't sustain it indefinitely. It was untenable.
0: Yeah, I've done that too with the, with the chunks. I actually did it today. So, so I feel, I feel called out a little bit. Oh, that's funny. I was telling my mom, I'm like, if I can just get through to mid April, then I'm gonna (laughs) take a break. And now I'm like, huh, Hmm. maybe maybe I should think about that after this call. Right, right. Hey,
1: might've come up for a reason.
0: Yeah. So thank you. The first time you ever took Ambien. You had these two words that when I read it, I was like, "Mm-hmm." Again, please. Did you know that that was a? I don't want to say like bad, but did you know that that wasn't the best way to be feeling about something? Or did it take you like how long did it take you to realize that you were going down a dangerous path?
1: Gosh, I loved. Ambient so much. I loved it. I loved, I loved everything about it. And, you know, I, I dedicated Stash to my sons, but it's also really an Ambient love story, too, <laughs> in the beginning, anyway. And so I think this is probably the best way I can describe it. I felt like I was in a dark basement, maybe a dark first floor of a house that was fine, but not really appealing, but I could live there. Taking that first ambient was like someone opened a side door I didn't know was there to this beautiful sunlit meadow. And part of me knew it was too good to be true. Like, once I head out there for real, the door's going to shut behind me and I don't know what the fuck's out there. But it was like the sun came in, you know, and I just inched toward that door. And then finally, when I was on the other side of it, of course, I'm skipping ahead, but the door does shut behind me. And then there is no getting back to that kind of semi-sane, comfortable space that I was in. So it was so alluring and it overrode all of the logic in my head. I fought back, you know, I tried to really be like, no, this is something you need to do now that we know it exists just every once in a while. And I, and I did for a while, you know, for about six months to a year. And then when that was okay, I'm like, well, hey, I can do it more often because that I wasn't too bad. Yes, <laughs> I got this. It's like, people are crazy. They're tripping. It's not a big deal. And then, you know, then it was, it was after that, it was, I was no longer in control of when and how and where and how much.
0: Yeah. And your tolerance got so high that reading the amount like the, and the math that you were doing and like the planning. <laughs> I love the math.
1: (laughs) I'm terrible at math. It's so hard for me. So I had to really be focused to do math.
0: There was a quote that someone said to you that I bookmarked. I want to make sure I say the exact quote. But this was right after you became PTA president. And then someone said, you know, you're representing all of us now, right? And like, you already had all of this pressure. And then it's like, please take some more pressure. <laughs> How was that moment for you? I mean, <laughs> I was pissed.
2: I was pissed,
1: <laughs> but she, she came at me the way she did. She's actually a nice person, but she has this tendency to be like the one in in charge. So like, I think she felt like she was in charge of me at that moment. So she needed to tell me what I needed to do. and. I have a thing with people like close talkers. I, I don't like people talking close to me, especially obviously with the pandemic, you know, stay away. But even prior to that, I don't want you too close to my face, it, it's, it's an invasion for me. Unless, you know, it's Scott and I'm kissing you, then <laughs> come close. But she was very close to me, which I immediately didn't like. I, I, I feel like that's an act of aggression. And then she put her finger in my face, which is an act of aggression. And she told me, you know, that you're the, you're the one in charge. Uh, what did she say? You're. You're representing
0: all you're representing of us You're representing all now. of us
1: now. Right. Right. And I got what she was saying. I was pissed about that too, because she was right. She was absolutely right. There is, you know, I'm in this very like elite private school that is a sister school to other similarly populated elite private schools in the Los Angeles area. And there are very, very, or were very few at that time, Black families in these schools. So I was looked upon by my peers, by my mainly white peers, as like the safe one, the right kind of Black. Like I was, I wasn't passing for white, but I was passing as like one of them. And if something went down with me, it would affect every single other Black family. I mean, she wasn't talking about Like, you're an addict, you need to watch it. (laughs) She was just saying, everything you do now will be scrutinized at a different level. So you got to, you got to, you know, you got to come correct with everything because you're representing us all. So I was pissed. I was pissed about that.
0: Did you, maybe this is a silly question, but did you know that people were going to feel that way? Like before you accepted the presidential role? I don't think I
1: thought about that. I think I was, I was, yeah, I don't know. Maybe I did. I don't, I don't know. I don't remember if I thought about that. It was shortly before she came up to me (laughs) and, and said that. So there was like, I had been asked, I accepted. And then there was a week and there's a newsletter that week where the announcement or the pre-announcement came out. And then that's when I started getting people coming up to me. And so when that announcement went out, I realized that this would probably be one of the reactions along with all the, you know, just so many congratulations and I know why, and you're perfect for this and blah, blah, blah. And can I get this committee? (laughs) Can I be the chair (laughs) of this committee? Like, you know, like they do when someone else is installed, but, but yeah, that was, that was a very real thing. And, and honestly, Jill, it's, it's something I still carry you know, I'm I'm in the rooms of recovery. It's, you know, almost entirely white spaces here in the part of Los Angeles where I am. And I am representing, you know, in those rooms, not like I'm going to take every other black person down with me, but um, the way I am is important in those rooms. And, and I need to be there for the next person that walks in so that they don't walk out thinking they don't see themselves there. So there is still a burden of representation on me. I just want to reject the burden of tokenization like that. I don't want, but the burden of representation I'm taking on.
0: Do you think that intensified your desire to check out a little bit?
1: Yeah. I mean, it was all food on the same plate, you know, it just, and, you know, so my, my mind loved it. My obsessive mind loved it. Like, yes, yes. Take on more because then we'll have more <laughs> of an excuse to get loaded and fuck those people. They don't <laughs> understand. Look how thin you're spread. So there was, I mean, there really was like this kind of whirring motor in the back of my head that was like, yes, 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 yes. Do it. Ego, maybe. But also I just think my addiction, period, or my alcoholism or whatever it is back there just needing to be fed. And I was more than happy to feed it then.
0: Have you struggled with like busyness in sobriety, like the, the desire to spread yourself really thin and, and do all this stuff?
1: Yeah, I, I try not to use that word struggle so much anymore. I don't, I don't know that it's a good fit for me, but I've certainly been challenged by it. And I'll tell you what, I haven't been challenged by it, but Scott is. <laughs> Scott So then you are too. (laughs) Scott and I are absolute opposites. Like I could go into my office where I'm sitting right now and look up and it's dark and be really gratified by a a day well spent getting shit done. He could never do that. Like he's an outdoorsman. He's out. He's probably out right now. Like, you know, riding his trail bike. What do they call those?
0: Gravel bike? Mountain bike?
1: Mountain bike. Thank you. (laughs)
0: My husband does the same thing. That's how I know.
1: (laughs) And he just, he's not a sit-at-his-desk person all day. And he really, truly desires quality time with me every day. And so me being fulfilled, being busy all day would be fine if it were just me, with me. It really would. But because it's not fine for him, and, and I happen to be in a relationship with him, I have been challenged about measuring my time and prioritizing the things that aren't on my to-do list. You know, I, I'm sure at some point I put time with Scott on my to-do list, but I usually don't. <laughs> and, and the, you know, the interesting thing about that is I found that I am better for it. And I didn't realize there was a lack or that there's anything that needed to expand or I didn't know that there was anything, there was a negative effect or a negative impact on me until I started shifting things around to accommodate his needs as well, that compromise.
0: I love that. And I love you guys together. And I love your, like, the story of how you got together and how you <laughs> met. It's just, you guys are so cute. I love it. Thank you. So your book is based on, like, a, the end of your story. As you were getting towards the end where you needed to get help, and you're balancing the pressure of all of these expectations and all of your different commitments and the image that you have to portray and the pressure of kind of keeping withdrawal symptoms away and doing all the math and make sure that you have enough how was that for you like were you thinking about this pressure at all or was it just like a background constant yeah it was like
1: you you have a cat we were talking about your cat before we started recording You know how when cats run across the street and they just flatten their ears and they don't look to either side? It's terrifying. And they just go. (laughs) That's how that period of my life was. (laughs) My ears were flattened. I wasn't looking to either side. I was just going like somebody was chasing me. And I mean, obviously the pressure, not obviously, but absolutely the pressure was, it added to the anxiety that I I was dealing with then that I didn't have a name for then the withdrawal was debilitating and so to appear in public and appear okay in the midst of those withdrawals periods became paramount for me to kind of figure out how much I could take so that I wouldn't be in full blown withdrawal when I saw people or got through that speech that I needed to give or you know whatever it was that I was doing i the timing of it was was preoccupying so I wasn't so much thinking about the bigger picture during that time. I was really just thinking about how do I get through this next hour? And then sometimes looking at the next day, thinking, what can I cancel so that I'm not just full-blown detoxing at this lunch, you know, or this, or with my trainer, you know, (laughs) which is ridiculous that I kept up all that stuff. But, but I did. And I kept showing, I was terrified of not showing up somewhere because then someone might suspect that there was something going on. And that was the most horrifying thing to me.
0: People finding out?
1: Yes. In my head, it was linked to my being able to stay in my children's lives. I think that was a lie. I think it was just that, I think it was a lie I was telling myself. I think that really just being found out meant I would have to stop using and drinking. And that was really the fear. But in my head, I justified it with if anybody finds out this, this connection that I have as their mom is in danger. So I have to keep them at bay at all costs.
0: Yeah, I resonate with that a lot. I told my husband first when I decided to quit. And then it's like, oh my God, somebody knows now. (laughs) Someone knows and I can't pretend it's not a problem anymore. Yeah, it's like
1: handing somebody your keys. You know, like when you're too drunk to drive and you don't want to admit it, but then you just hand them the keys and now you can't drive because you've handed them the keys. You've basically outed yourself as being impaired. That was just, you know, terrifying to me. It added to the anxiety.
0: Yeah. And towards the end, like, you know, you weren't, your tolerance was so high. You weren't getting that euphoria anymore. You're just trying to not feel horrible. Was that frustrating that you couldn't, couldn't get that feeling that you were chasing or were you so focused on just not feeling horrible?
1: Both. I don't know if frustrating is the word I use. I think it was devastating to me. And I was, you know, I, there were a lot of points during that time where I had just tears in my eyes because I couldn't figure it out. And I had, you know, I kind of hacked my way through, you know, my, my childhood, my teenage years, my 20s. I, I hadn't taken any of the traditional paths that people take to get where they're going, but I had figured out a way to get there anyway. And I assumed that this was something I would be able to hack. I would be able to figure out Okay, if I do this, this, and this, then it's under control and no one knows. And I just kept getting deeper and deeper into it and running closer to the risk of being exposed. And I was, I really didn't want to give it up. You know, I, I knew that giving it up meant giving up sleep and sleep was so precious to me. It is so precious to me. And I just was like, if I give this up, I'm not going to be able to sleep and no one's ever going to prescribe me anything to sleep ever again. And I, I'm going to spend the rest of my life miserable and I'm not going to be able to show up for my kids because I'm going to be like this ball of nerves because I'm not going to sleep. And, you know, that was, um, the end was I wasn't getting to sleep and I couldn't take not having Ambien in my system. Like it was too physically and mentally and probably spiritually painful for me. So I was at that proverbial crossroads where I couldn't live with it and I couldn't live without it.
0: What was the realization for you when you were like, This I can't I can't do this another minute? You know, I, I
1: write about this. It's it was like a series of realizations. It was that that Robin Williams quote, you know, I'm compromising my values faster than I can lower them.
0: That's a good one.
1: Yeah. <laughs> and and I was. You know, I said, I'll never take a pill while my kids are awake. I'll never drink alcohol during the day. I'll never like all these things that I said I would never do. And I was not only doing them, but I could, I mean, I, I couldn't stop doing them. I couldn't even like discipline myself around doing them. Like usually I could say, okay, just the morning or just the afternoon or just like whatever it is. And I couldn't do that either. It was just, it was on and I wasn't getting the result anymore. And there just wasn't enough pills. You know, I thought there wasn't enough pills just for me, but I don't know that there would have been enough pills in the world. I'm sure I would have died. I'm sure of it because I would have taken all that I had forever. Whatever that whatever that quantity was, I would have taken everything, not in a suicide attempt. I didn't consciously want to die ever, but I was taking lethal doses of sleeping pills and washing them down with vodka, warm vodka from my rain boots, not a martini <laughs> shaken. Sure. That's <laughs> a fancy kind. Yes. Like whatever kind I could get at our local grocery store without being noticed. That's what kind I bought. So I'm I'm sure I would have died had I continued because I didn't have the stop. I didn't have the red light. I didn't have the stop the off switch.
0: When you got sober and you I know it took you a long time to regulate your sleep and and heal from that, but did you have resentments about this like, role that you had to play and, and all the responsibility that you felt that you had, like to show up a certain way and, and like do all the things? Did you ever resent anyone? That's a That's
1: a good question. No one's ever asked me that. I um, love
0: resentments. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I, I think that truly it was my, my resentments were against myself, because no one no one had said, "This is what you should do." I had just, like I said, I would hustled my way into this life, and then I had gleaned, had I, because I, I would, I had fallen in love with my my now ex husband. That was that was real. That and that it didn't have anything to do with who he was. It was just like he was he was th- my person then. And had I fallen in love with him and married him, and then gotten to know this life that I was now expected to lead, and said no way, and continued on and been true to myself, I might have been okay. You know, maybe during that first year, like, I fucking resented everybody. I hated everybody in treatment. I hated everybody my first year. I hated everybody who loved recovery. Like, but I don't think I specifically resented the people who were living the life that I pretended to like, because they didn't do anything wrong. I mean, neither did the people who like recovery, but I was... (laughs) I guess they were easier targets for me or something. But yeah, I'm not, I don't consciously, I don't remember resenting them, but I do remember resenting myself.
0: That's a really interesting perspective. Did you shame yourself too? Or was it definitely because I shamed myself and I resented other people. So yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know. I'm sure, I'm sure I was, I was
1: ashamed of being, I was absolutely ashamed of being a mother who was an addict and an alcoholic. Like that was, extremely shameful to me and more shameful that my alcoholism and addiction kicked in after my kids were born, which is like, you hear a lot of moms in recovery talking about, thank God my kids never saw me take a drink, um, because they stopped, you know, that was what stopped them as they, but mine started then. So that was particularly shameful to me. And then you know, I was ashamed of being in recovery. I was, I, I might have been more ashamed of being in recovery that first year than I was of being an addict or an alcoholic because that was a full admission. Me going to a recovery meeting was an admission that I needed it. And I, you know, me saying I don't drink at the next dinner party meant that I was different from everybody else. I hated that and I was ashamed of that. But I don't know if I, shamed myself for signing up the way that I did for this life. I think I understood even then, and I understand it much more now that the way I lived was survival. It was a survival instinct in me. It wasn't like, let me see what I can get from him or her or them. It was like, if I'm going to survive, this is the way to do it. And I adapt and I'm a chameleon and I code switch and I do this because that's how I'm going to survive.
0: And when you got sober, and you got away from resenting the pink cloud people a little bit, (laughs) was it hard for you to just be you? Because you go back to life and you're used to doing your life a certain way. Was it hard for you to not fall back into the same pattern where you felt like you had to show up a certain way? Yeah, that
1: was really interesting. So the returning to my life and then really examining the obligations of it, one by one to see what was good for me. It started off as what's good for my sobriety. So is, is this good for my sobriety? Is this adding to my recovery? And if it wasn't, then it, it went. This was not just me, this was me and the woman who was guiding me through this process. And probably a couple other, uh, a couple moms, a couple women. I had like this recovery governance committee, I called it, that I assembled <laughs> because on my own, I'm, I'm a very prideful self-sufficient. I don't want to ask anybody anything. I want to tell you how I did it after it's all done. But I certainly don't want to ask for help along the way. You know, One of the many things I give myself credit for is that I really, as unwilling as I was, as resistant as I was rather, because I wasn't unwilling because I did it, I, I did what I was told when I came in to the program. I I, they said, you know, go to this many meetings a day, always put something in the basket, sit in front, don't pick up your phone, listen to the speaker. I did all that. I fellowshipped and I did all the stuff that was recommended. And when she said, we need to look at your schedule because your recovery has to be whatever your life is, if your life is this big, your recovery has to be proportionately bigger, right? So it's not right now. <laughs> She's like, your life is much bigger than your recovery. <laughs> So we need to even that out and get your recovery up here. So we like literally looked at my day planner, which is what I used to figure out how much ambient I could take. <laughs> and we looked at it to see what I could eliminate from my life and which meant disappointing people, which meant saying no, which meant backing out of certain obligations. And then, then eventually what that looked like was I got to see, can I be myself in this role? Is this intuitive to me? Is this going to make me happy? And, and, and are my priorities intact, you know, at that point, while my kids were little, my kids were my priorities, right under my recovery was my kids. And and then my, my family, my parents, my brothers, you know, like that was, that was second, but my kids were next. So I had to just, I didn't have to, I chose to just keep looking at everything in my calendar. Am I prioritizing my recovery or my kids second? And if not, then something else had to go.
0: I love that. That's really good. I think that's a great exercise for anyone who's new to sobriety or is like in a funk or something. You always have to prioritize it. And sometimes that can make you resent sobriety and want balance and everything. But without it, there's nothing else.
1: Not for me. Not for me. I know that for sure. I'm so happy I know it for sure too. I'm not happy about the way I found out for sure. (laughs) But I know for sure, you know, that that I have this thing. I have it. I have it. It's a tiger sleeping in the back of the cage right now, but it is not gone. And I don't want to wake that bitch up. So I'm doing everything that I can do because, you know, my life is crazy amazing. And it's not because of what I get to do, but how I get to do it, you know, with this joy, with this freedom this gratitude that I have that I think I've worked really hard for. You know, I think I've earned it, but I'm enjoying it.
0: I love that. What would you say your favorite part of writing Stash was? If you had to pick a favorite part.
1: Gosh, I really, I love writing. I just love it. I love the ritual of it. I love, you know, sitting down at my computer and having my snacks and my big bottle of water. (laughs) (laughs) And, and turning my phone over, leaving it so that my kids could get through if they need to, and just disappearing into it. I think my favorite part of writing the book, like the favorite, the most fun things to write were like the meadows, like my time in treatment, because there was so many, it's, it was like one of the most dire, horrible times of my life, but there was so much levity there. You know, there was so there was it was like almost being on one of those reality TV shows where you're stuck with however many people for 30 days and people were just funny. And I I think I started to kind of find myself again there because I was separated from drugs and alcohol for the first time in a very long time. And even though I didn't want to be there and and didn't like being there the whole time, I laughed while I was there. I I was playful. I had fun with my roommate, Laura. And then, you know, I met Scott there. And so that was, that was really fun to write. And the epilogue at the end of the book was really emotional for me to write because I, that also poured out of me. I, they, I, they, were, they had forgotten to get it from me and I needed to turn it in that day. And I had other things to do. And I was like, okay, 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 I can do this. So I'm like, okay, what happened <laughs> in my head? Like, what, did it, what do I need to write here? What happened? Because everybody that had read the manuscript up to that point had said, what happens? Like, I want to know more. Like, people who knew what happened wanted me to write down what happened. So I was like, okay, I'll write down what happens. And, but I needed to be a snapshot. So that was really fun to write, too. And like I said, very emotional as well.
0: Yeah, I bet that was tough, too, like transporting yourself back. In those tough moments.
1: Yes. That, that was, there were a couple of times where I had to break from my, my desk and go watch a sitcom for a half hour or something. But but I really did, you know, I think I was sick one day, but I, I kept to my 11 to 7 writing schedule five days a week for that six month period that I wrote it.
0: So what's next for you? Are you going to write another book? I am. I've started writing um, something, and
1: it's in very early stages. But my agent loves the pages.
0: Yay! So, that's wonderful.
1: So I will see what direction she gives me to continue. I feel like I'm warmed up. Like she could put me in the game. I don't need to, like, you know what I mean? Like, I feel like I can just go in and write something right now. That I'm. I, it'll, it's very accessible to me right now. Even if she moves me into another direction, because it's memoir. I'm not making shit up. It's just like, oh, talk about this aspect of your life. So I can do that. I would, I would like to write fiction, I think, at some point. But I don't think that's the next book or the next book after that. I think it's memoir for me for a while.
0: Well, you're really good at it. So I'm glad that you're continuing.
1: Thank you, Jill.
0: So besides getting Stash, which everybody should go get immediately yes, yes. if you haven't, where can we connect with your work and learn more about you. So, uh the onlyonepod.com,
1: that's our website. It's The Only One in the Room podcast, so it's short for that. And that's a podcast where people come on to tell us the stories of how they either were or felt like the only one in the room. And on that site is all my socials, my bio, pictures of me, pictures of me and Scott, all of our podcast episodes, where you can buy stash. There's a link right on the homepage to purchase the book. And I'll just say this as a plug, not just for me, but for this particular genre, which is Quitlit, there are no black women in Quitlit. If you look up Quitlit authors, you will not see any women of color, period. And so if people buy my book, which I hope you do, it's not just a purchase for my book, but it's also calling for more voices like mine in this space because it's really important, it almost kept me out when I didn't see others who look like me. I didn't read stories from people who look like me. In fact, it did keep me out for a while, but, but now there is one. So hopefully this leads to more and then there will be proverbial digital shelves filled with Quitlet from people of all different races and backgrounds and ethnicities.
0: Yeah, and you mentioned that a little bit earlier, but it, it is a major problem. And especially like on Instagram and everything. Yeah. It's a major problem. It is. And I speak of Instagram. I actually, I really love your videos on it. So everybody go follow Laura. I, every time I see a video pop up from you, I'm like, ooh, what's she talking about? We have, we have a really
1: terrific social media guy who has done a, he's like my boss now. And he's like, just like, I have to give him, I have to continually create content for him. You know all about that. Um, and a lot of, you know, what we're doing on Instagram, when he and I first sat down and talked about creating an author's Instagram, which is what I've been trying to do these last few months, I, I talked about you um, and how you say, you know, don't just post your episode because you know, no one cares. <laughs> which <But>, they did. <laughs> but you want to post something interesting that might lead them into it. And it may often seem unrelated. To the episode, I think I'm, I might be misquoting you, but that's what I got from what you said. And so um, we've been doing that. We've been posting things that may or may not have anything to do with Stash or the only one in the room, but you know they're they're adjacent or kind of aligned, and people are interested. And then they get in, and then there's you know then it ends with here's the book, basically. And by that time, you've watched the whole video, so haha, um, <laughs> <laughs> you know it's a book. But, um, but yeah, we really both Scott and I credit you with that and appreciate you for that.
0: Oh my God, that like made my whole day, like my whole month. Thank you. Wow. But, but is that what you say? Am I, am yeah. I making that? Okay, good. <laughs> no, that
1: was me. I mean, I knew that was you, but I didn't know if that was specifically you. No, what you got said. it. Okay, yeah. good. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Sneak attack them. Sneak don't tell attack. Yeah. Don't tell them it's your book or it's your episode. Now everybody's listening. They're like, oh, you do do that to me all the time.
1: (laughs) Well, you do. And I still click on it. (laughs) I know what you're doing, but it's still interesting. So, so there you go.
0: Well, thank you. That means a lot.
1: Yeah, of course.
0: And thank you so much for being on here today and can't wait for the next memoir. And I'm just so excited for you that this is about to be out.
1: Thank you, Jill. Thank you for having me on. I, I meant what I said at the beginning. I was really looking forward to this conversation. You're just one of my favorite people. And, you know, like, and and I hate to keep bringing Scott into this, but he wouldn't mind because we talk <laughs> about you a lot. And, and just, you know, you're one of those people that is, has stood out for us as an ally in this space, you know, like, oh, we could ask Jill or Jill's right over there. Or let's make sure we see Jill or, it's so cool to come on your show and, and have this discussion. And I am, am really grateful for the platform to, to tell my story and to share about Stash. So thank you.
0: Well, I hope that you will come back because there's, there's a lot more. It was hard to pick where I wanted to steer this. <laughs> i love
1: to. I'd love to. Anytime. You just let me know.
0: Thank you. And everybody go check out Stash, the only one in the room podcast, and all that will be in the show notes. Thanks, y'all.